Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Heard of James? Um, I have to. He told me today I've been mispronouncing his last name <laughs> for the last how many years? Perez. Uh, Here I go. <laughs> James Perez. And some of you know he's one of the founding teachers at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, uh, just north of San Francisco, one of the main centers in the Vipassana tradition here in the states. And James is also one of our uh, members of our advisory board and he's been an important teacher of mine. I'd just like to share um, a couple qualities that have been really important for me just in knowing James over the years, not so much recently, but uh, especially during three or four years I was involved in a program that James initiated through Spirit Rock called the Community Dharma Leaders Program. But one is, uh, and he reminded me again today, but I remember uh, during my time when I was seeing James more regularly, just his capacity to see what was beautiful. And it was really contagious just being around him. Both, you know, his ability to see something beautiful in me, and I saw him see beautiful things in other people, and uh, in a way that it was easy for us to see or for me to see and feel. Beautiful dogs. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other quality that has been really powerful for me to see in just being around James, it's just the, just the power of confidence to, to be himself. And it's not something we often say in a Buddhist setting, because we don't, you know, what does that mean, be oneself? <laughs> but just comfortable in his own skin, and not taking it personally, but not afraid of the personality and the life and the situations. And I've really seen him modeling, um, just kind of rolling with life and being comfortable in life and comfortable in his own skin. And that's been a really powerful lesson for me, uh, just being around James. And so some of you know, a number of people in the community, maybe some of you in the future will take James's online course, Awakening Joy. There's some flyers out in the entranceway. You can find out more about this 10-month course. But this is uh, one of the ways James has been teaching uh, in the last several years, and now with the book. And uh, so fortunately, we get to see him because he's out promoting the book and getting it out there for people to hear about. And so tonight, James is going to be talking about awakening joy. And thanks so much for coming, James. Really lovely to have you here. <clears throat> well, it's, it is a real treat to be here um, in in a number of ways. First, just to uh, to reconnect with with you, Mark, and uh, just to see what a thriving, healthy, beautiful community you have, and uh, just what you've what you've done with uh, with sharing the Dharma from your heart. And it's not surprising, but it's great to see firsthand. Um, and also to to meet uh, the people that I've met so far, I've you know you really know how to take care of somebody. At least uh, I, I've I've felt that. So thanks to everybody who's who's been so gracious. <clears throat> uh, so I will talk about this topic of awakening joy, uh, and I'll. I want to leave uh, time for discussion. Really, what what the book is about and what um, what the the course is about is um, ways to see that this path is a path of happiness. Um, that 
the Dharma, the practices that we're doing, um, is really uh, about happiness. And I was motivated to write and to explore and, and develop uh, some practices uh, to make them accessible to anyone, whether or not they've done any meditation, um, out of um, my own experience where as much as I have been moved by Buddha Dharma, uh, I first got into the into the, the, the teachings uh, in 1974, and it was my salvation. I was in a lot of suffering, internal suffering, and when I came to the practice, it was like uh, there was a way out of suffering, and I really went for it. And for quite some time, was um, had a long honeymoon phase. But as much as I had that experience, at some point, I became very serious with my practice. Dead serious. <laughs> and I lost my joy. I somehow got... Message, uh, I interpreted messages uh, that kind of... Um, I got tangled up with the end of suffering with the end of living. And I became... Um, I, I'm, I'm a kind of person that, that likes to enjoy life. And in fact, one of the things that, that first got me hooked on is, is... I'm just trying to see what stories to tell is one that's coming through. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that, that first got me hooked on the practice, when my first summer in 1974, when I met Joseph Goldstein, my teacher, and uh, main teacher of, of Marx and, and many, many others, um, I, uh, in that first summer, I, I, I was wondering, is this for me? I knew it was for me. It felt really right. But one, one afternoon, I went into that first essential Buddhism class, and I had my New York Knicks t-shirt on, um, and I was a season ticket holder for the New York Knicks at the time. This is their glory days, like 1973, 74, if you remember, if you're old enough, Dave DeBusher and Willis Reed and Walt Frazier and Earl the Pearl was my, my, favorite, <laughs> my favorite player. But I, I would go to, that was one of my, well, probably a number of my top ten moments in my life were in Madison Square Garden. And there I was this, this one afternoon uh, sitting in Joseph's class, and I remembered, I realized I oh, had my next shirt, and this awful thought came to me that motivated me to go up to speak to Joseph for the very first time. I finally mustered up the courage because it was like, wow, he's amazing meditation teacher. I said, uh, look, uh, Joseph, I've got something to uh, check out with you. I'm, um, I'm a season ticket holder. <laughs> and I wonder, is this going to lead me? I'm going to be, am I going to go to Madison Square Garden and say, nice shot, Frazier. <laughs> Very good move to have this shot. Because I wasn't ready to sign up for it if, if that, was, that was where it was leading. And he gave the perfect answer. He said, don't worry, you'll probably just get over a loss a little bit sooner. Okay. I'm in. I'm going for it. And, uh, and as I say, it was, uh, it, it was my salvation. But when I got very serious about practice, I somehow lost that, um, that aliveness. This is not something um, unique to me. Uh, it's something that can be one of the, the dangers in taking practice very seriously um, because there are some messages that say not to get so uh, caught up in uh, the dazzle of life that you... Um, that you get swept away and don't see a deeper happiness. There's one word, for instance, in the teachings, nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, that sometimes is translated as uh, one should have utter disgust for 
the five aggregates for this mind-body process or revulsion for the mind-body process of this form and other forms. <laughs> but uh, as Andy Olinsky points out, this wonderful um, uh, Buddhist scholar and, and, and teacher teaches at uh, the study center in, in Barry. He said that that's that's one. Those are two translations for this word. But the real meaning of nibbida is disenchantment. One should have disenchantment. One should uh, not be. One should break the spell of the um, the seduction of this form. That doesn't mean to have utter disgust for it, but it's easy in teachings like that to be mis, to have a misunderstanding and think, oh, it's not okay to enjoy life. And in fact, I, I want to share with you one of my uh, favorite quotes. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, a, a wonderful, well-respected, the, the most respected Theravadan monastic, uh, Western monastic. Um, and one of the most respected of any monastics um, alive. And this is what he says. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. This is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness of life, and the selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is really joy, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean, and they live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have insight, then you find that you enjoy delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. So, so um, this is something that I saw when I got, when I reclaimed my joy and when I got it back, I asked myself the question, where did I go wrong? What did the Buddha really say about happiness? Because the Buddha was called the happy one. And in fact, he said, go for the highest happiness, and all the other ones will come. And you can experience them and and appreciate them. The Dalai Lama starts out his wonderful book, The Art of Happiness. The first line in the book, the purpose of life is to be happy. Which is a great way to start a book, (laughs) I think. So, where... I wondered, did I go wrong? <clears throat> and and more that I saw where I went wrong. More than that, what did the Buddha really say about happiness and joy? Because joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment. Joy is one of the four divine abodes, along with loving kindness and compassion and equanimity. Joy is one of a number of words that describes a whole continuum of states of well-being from gladness, delight, pomoja, and rapture, piti, and happiness, sukha, and there's different kinds of contentment and peace. So this is something that's really valued. So I took a look and in the uh, process saw a few different really powerful teachings for me that I wanted to not only practice for myself but also share with others so that you could see so people could see who might tend to get on the more serious side that although the path is talked about as suffering uh, understanding, Suffering and the end of suffering, 
you know, the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering in life, there is a cause of suffering, there is an end to suffering, and there is a path to the end of suffering. Sometimes it's hard to remember, oh, this is about happiness. Um, It doesn't get as much airplay. So I wanted to really reorient and see this is really about opening up to as, uh, as much well-being as we can. The key is to know where happiness, what true happiness is, and where it really lies. So I took a few different principles and um, practiced them for myself and then wanted to share them with others, and that's what this, this course is about, and the book is uh, based on the course. Actually, I started writing the book and then uh, or writing about this topic, and then I put together a course to just check out my theories, but the course seemed to be helpful and it grew and and it grew a, a lot. So the book became about the course because I was getting a lot of more information as so I did the course. By the way, I just want to put in uh, a word about the course. Mark said that there are those sheets out there uh, that tell about it. It's started, it's a 10-month course that you can take online. Many people more people take it online than live. And um, there is a suggested donation, but people can offer whatever they want for it. And it seems to work if you if you put your intention into it. So <clears throat> the key is to see where happiness lies. It does not lie in what we've been where we've been pointed and say saying this will make you happy. We are, the Buddha was talking 2,500 years ago, watch out for um, being entranced by things and objects and experiences as a cause of happiness. Well, now it's been elevated to a high art to seduce and entrance us. And I share with you uh, a, um, an ad that um, I I mentioned in the book, but you get to see the picture that it's from. um, To just show you what we're up against, this is called The Gold Shivers, a beautiful woman draped in gold. It's a two-page ad. The Gold Shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. (laughs) Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. And on the second page, you can see the the picture. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye, to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. (laughs) Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. (laughs) This is what we're up against. According to uh, one uh, one book, uh, Culture Jam by Kali Lassen, the average American gets 3,000 messages every day saying, this is going to make you happy. You think you're happy. You're not happy. This is going to make you happy. Unless you're on retreat, then it's lunchtime. Is the, oh, this will make you happy. So if that's not where real happiness lies... Where does it? Well, the Buddha said that happiness is not about what you can get. There are certain states of well-being that are already in us. Joy is already in us. You were born into this world with that capacity. And if you see a baby with its diapers changed and and fed and taken care of, who's received a minimal amount of love and and care, uh, they squeal with delight. Isn't life wonderful? We all have had that capacity, and we have that capacity. And so this is more and more uncovering what's in here. And what the teachings point to are different wholesome states that are called wholesome, kusala, that are called wholesome because they lead 
to well-being and happiness, as opposed to unwholesome states, akusala, that are those that lead to suffering. Akusala, unwholesome states, like anger, jealousy, greed, envy, confusion. You know those, right? The mind gets very contracted and can't see, and the heart closes. Wholesome states, like kindness, generosity, compassion, patience, all of those have to do with opening, expanding the heart. And so as we open and expand, then we can allow that natural joy to emerge, that factor of enlightenment, that quality of well-being that naturally arises when the mind is not contracted and confused. So the three principles that struck me that I have put together as the the cornerstone of, of the book and the course, one principle, the teaching on wise effort. Wise effort, if you are familiar with it, is one of the uh, links of the Eightfold Path. And what wise effort uh, technically means is guarding against unwholesome states, overcoming them when they have arisen. You know, you get, you have anger. How can you deal with anger so that it's not overwhelming and so you can you can hold it in a different way? Those are two aspects of wise effort. And then other two, developing wholesome states that aren't here, like you might do loving-kindness practice or mindfulness practice, lots of different generosity practices. You can develop those. And the fourth aspect of wise effort is to maintain and increase wholesome states when they've arisen. This is a good thing, the Buddha said. This is one aspect of wise effort. When you're feeling in a a state of well-being, it's supportive and wise to maintain and increase that state. Now, you might say, well, doesn't that sound like attachment? This is not about attachment. The moment that you get attached to the state, you're contracting, and it's the surest way to have it end. But there are ways to maintain and increase that wholesome state that are skillful. So this is the first principle, to develop and to maintain and increase the wholesome states. And what what the what I write about, it, the, the book is called Ten Steps That Will Put You on the Road to Real Happiness. That's the subtitle after Awakening Joy. Is focus on ten different wholesome states that one can practice over time and notice those states of well-being as you start to do that, you're maintaining and increasing them. Okay, So that's it. Developing and increasing wholesome states, that's one principle. Second teaching, uh, the Buddha talks about the fact that uh, along with these wholesome states, there's a gladness that accompanies them. This I came across this in a in a not so well known discourse uh, a number of years ago, but the words kind of leaped out at me. If for those the Sutta scholars or it, those interested in that, it's in uh, uh, Majima 99 to Suba, and the the words that the Buddha says, he says, if you are in the middle of a generous act one should think to oneself, I am generous. He says, get in touch with the fact, oh, I'm being generous right now. And as you reflect on this, there's a gladness connected with the wholesome state. That gladness, through what that gladness one uh, gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth, inspiration in the Dharma and it opens the heart. That gladness, the words go, I call an equipment of mind 
to overcome ill will and hostility. So when you're in the middle of that feeling of well-being, to notice the gladness. He's not saying, hey, everybody see how generous I am? Hey, I'm a pretty generous guy. No, 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 no. That's kind of missing the point. He's saying, feel how good it feels for generosity to arise in you. And when you're in touch with that gladness, it is an antidote to overcome all ill will and hostility, because the heart opens with that. So this second principle I have found very, very helpful when you're in the middle of a state of well-being. Rather than knowing that you're feeling good, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good, to feel what it's like to feel good is the key. To truly take it, take it in, as, as my friend uh, Rick Hansen, has Rick been here? No. Uh, who uh, is a, um, also is in, uh, was in one of the uh, community Dharma leader programs and is a neuroscience expert. He wrote a book that's become quite popular lately called Buddha's Brain about the intersection of neuroscience and Dharma and, um, and psychology. And there's neuroscience th- th- throughout, throughout the book. He, he calls it uh, taking in the good, that when you're very present for the wholesome state, it deepens the, the neural pathways in your brain and in your whole being, that to really explore the landscape of it and savor it, not with attachment, just, mm, oh, this is what it feels like to feel good. It's a very potent way to anchor that feeling. And you start to become more and more aware of it, and it suffuses you with well-being. That's taking in the gladness of the wholesome. Those two principles. And then the third principle is the Buddha's teaching uh, that's in uh, Majjhima 19, uh, again, for those interested, where he says, very simply, Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? Pretty straightforward. Whatever you frequently, if you frequently think and ponder upon how the world is a mess, everybody around is a jerk, and you're going to just be disappointed, you know you're going to be disappointed. That becomes the inclination of your mind and the filter through which you see life. And you will have ample evidence to corroborate your hypothesis. If you frequently think and ponder upon how amazing it is to be alive, how blessed your life is, how there's goodness in everybody if we can just see, look carefully enough and, um, and invite it out. If that's the inclination of your mind, if you frequently think and ponder upon it, that's what you'll, how you'll see life through. Not with denial, not with naivete, but you'll be able to recognize that when you see it. So doing, cultivating wholesome states over a, a period of time, consciously, starts to incline the mind in that direction. Again, neuroscience uh, uh, confirms the Buddha's statement in the very simple and powerful uh, axiom, neurons that fire together, wire together. The neural pathways that you've been practicing, that's the way your mind goes. They're set up. And if you start to wire, fire new ways of seeing things, they start to wire in a different way. And so you start to see, you start to incline your mind and your heart towards well-being. I'll give you a, a, a few examples of this. Um, I'll tell you a, a little bit about the wholesome states, and we'll do a couple of ex- uh, 
maybe experiential exercises, then we'll take some questions. Mm. I can see I'm not going to get through the 10-month course. (laughs) (laughs) So the first wholesome state that's really the cornerstone of awakening joy or well-being is that of intention. Everything starts with intention. As Tibetans say, uh, uh, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. And if you have the intention to make well-being at the center of your life, then um, you do your part. It's not like you've got a report card going, is life passing or failing my test? You just incline the mind that way and value happiness. Many people don't realize that as much as they want to be happy, they've not put it at the center of their life. Everybody wants to be happy. Does anybody not want to be happy here? Now, if you're holding back your hand from saying, yeah, sometimes I don't want to be happy, you know. I can understand that. That's your way of being happy. (laughs) Because we, and we get misguided in thinking, oh, well, yeah, I have a right to be grumpy. Of course you have a right to be grumpy. This is going to make me feel better in some way to be grumpy. Or whatever. Um, But we all want to be happy. So this is really getting in touch with that place deep inside of us that is wishing for our well-being. Isn't it there? That governs almost everything that you do, as misguided as sometimes it is, you want to be happy. So this is activating and empowering that place in you that really does want well-being. And when I say joy, by the way, that covers a whole lot of a whole lot of different expressions and not talking about oh yes aren't we happy today and putting a smiley smile on your face and that's called denial uh, usually <laughs> but there's feelings of delight and there's feelings of ease and contentment and really happy people are not happy all the time they're real and they're engaged but they see things with a, a bigger perspective Starting with the intention to be happy, that makes all the difference in the world. It's just a decision to orient that as the center of your your life, because it is the most important thing to us. Then you see, as I said, where real happiness lies. That leads to the second step of mindfulness, which is the underpinning for the whole course. Because as the Buddha said, It is the most direct way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, and grief and despair, pain and anxiety, and realize the highest happiness, to establish mindfulness. Because when you're mindful, you are present for your life and not lost in your stories. And mindfulness is the one factor that develops all the wholesome states, all the wholesome mental factors, and weakens all the unwholesome mental factors. It's got a very unique position in that way. And when you are present for the wholesome state, you amplify it, like I said before, taking in the good. A third, and this one I think we'll do an exercise with, is um, as you are present, there Mindfulness is really an appreciation practice. You are appreciating the present moment. And the flowering of appreciation is the grateful heart, which we all know is an extraordinary way to connect with the goodness inside and outside. Gratitude is probably the the quickest, most direct way to awaken some joy and well-being. And uh, we'll just take a simple exercise to um, explore this right now, both with that feeling and also bringing mindfulness to to it. So just close your eyes for a moment. And bring to mind either someone that you're grateful 
to, or grateful for, or some blessing in your life that you're grateful for. And whichever one that you pick, have an image right now, either of that person or that circumstance, so you can connect with this blessing. As you see that person or have that situation in mind, give thanks for a moment, just silently, for thanking life or that person. Thank you. And let yourself feel it. Thank you. And as you do, for a moment, turn your attention to how it feels, that capacity to feel grateful. What does it feel like in your body, in your mind? Let yourself take it in. Take a breath. We'll do it once again. Again, bring someone else or some other blessing to mind. Have an image that connects you with it or with them. And again, give thanks. Just silently, thank you. Let yourself feel it. Let yourself take it in. Relax into that grateful heart. And notice how it feels. If you'd like, you can open your eyes. Did you get it? It's just inclining the mind for a few moments. Any time that you see that is um, is a chance for you. It doesn't take long, you know. According to the neuroscience, actually, Rick Hansen has this. Uh, uh, he was just the guest at the last Joy Joy class. Um, and all, all the classes, by the way, are recorded. They're on video and audio, and uh, you can see them. And he was saying, uh, you do that six times a day for 30 seconds, and you will notice a very profound difference in, within a couple of weeks, according to just how you're anchoring that in your mind. Now, you might say, well, you know, that's just not how I'm wired up. So I want to share with you a uh, one anecdote from, from the book, a personal one. My probably the uh, probably my favorite anecdote in the whole book because it's about my mom. And I'll, I'll just give you a sense of the of the possibilities. Mm. Uh, one year I was in Los Angeles visiting my then 89-year-old mother. And I, I brought with, I'll just talk a little bit because it's time. I brought with me um, a copy of Greater Good magazine uh, journal, which is an online journal of wellness and altruism, all the cutting-edge re research. And I, uh, I said, um, uh, my mom has a tendency to see the negative by her own admission. She says, if she doesn't have anything to worry about, then she really gets worried. <laughs> and uh, she, she knows that her life has been blessed, but she just tends to see what's wrong. And I share with her all this research about boosting your immune system and all the ways that it's beneficial. And she said, sounds pretty good. I said, what do you think? She said, yeah, if I could do it, I, that would be great. I, but, you know, I'm 89. I've been doing it this way a long time. I don't think I can change. So I decided to, um, we were playing Scrabble when this happened. We, we, she's very good, loves to beat me, which she can do. 
And uh, I said, okay, let's make a game out of it. Are you willing to make a game? She said, what do you mean? I said, okay, so suppose something goes wrong and you're there complaining, like the TV set going, uh, getting poor reception. She said, okay, that's one I can relate to. I said, well, you can say either, oh, this is so annoying I could scream, or you could say, oh, this is so annoying I could scream, and my life is really very blessed. She said, yeah. I said, okay. She said, that makes sense, if I could remember it. I said, okay, how about every time a complaint comes out of you, I just say, and... And you say, and my life is very blessed. And she was game for it. She said, okay, let's do it. We were there. I spent a week down there. My sister was out of town. She lives very close to her. They're very close. And I had lots of different, uh, lots of opportunities. And they rolled off her tongue. I said, and, she said, oh yeah, and my life is very blessed. And um, we had a great week. Miraculously, she kept it up. I called her a lot after I got home, and you know, and my sister came back three weeks later. She was uh, uh, overseas, and she said, "What did you do to mom?" <laughs> this is true. She wasn't entirely thrilled with it because, but because uh, she kind of thinks that way too. But uh, <laughs> but she got into it. She got used to it. Anyway. It took hold, and and uh, seven months later, she wrote me um, a card. It was my birthday. We always exchange birthday poems, and she wrote this poem. During that time, she started to lose her eyesight, which amazingly has been restored. It's a kind of interesting situation. But at this point, she was losing her eyesight. This is part of the poem. 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing, to be sure. So if my now 91-year-old mother can change, anyone can change. And, and it's kept up. She, we, a few months ago, we were, having, uh, we were having a conversation. I was just about to go to teach and talking, and, um, and she was talking about, oh, I was so, so blessed, and this, this blessing and that blessing. I said, Mom, you are so positive these days. She said, I'm having so many positive thoughts, it's positively exhausting. <laughs> it's, you can change. So, gratitude, I'll just briefly mention a few, and uh, you can, you can uh, check out the others. The, the fourth step is dealing with the hard stuff. Because, you know, I, I have been teaching Buddhist philosophy for many years, and... Life is hard. It's the first noble truth. There's suffering in life. And if you can't learn to deal with that, you're going to be um, running up against a continual challenge to find well-being. But the Buddha actually said suffering in one list can be a causative factor for faith. Faith can be a causative factor for gladness. Gladness can be a causative factor for joy, up to contentment, happiness, contentment, equanimity, all the way to enlightenment. So he says suffering can lead to joy and beyond. You might say, how does that work? How many people were motivated to get into meditation practice or spiritual journey out of suffering in their life? Raise your hand. That's how it works. It can shake you out of your complacency and make you take a good look. What is really the meaning of life? And so part of this is learning to work with the difficulties and the pains in our heart and the losses that we experience so that we don't get overwhelmed by them. The gratitude and the, 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 the um, 
wholesome states create more of a context where that suffering doesn't have to overwhelm. Where, as I'm sure many of you are familiar with the the phrase, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, the fabric of life, that the joys can hold the sorrows. And if you're just focusing on the sorrows and how things are, are bad, then we get overwhelmed quite quickly. So working with the hard stuff, living a life of integrity, what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness, where you're aligned with your values. This is a source of deep happiness. And then there are other ones. Uh, um, loving yourself is key. <coughs> loving others, expressing your, your compassion. And ultimately, the last step after cultivating all of the wholesome states, the first nine, the tenth step is stopping doing anything and just be open to the joy of being, which has been here all along, when if you truly relax, you're struggling, and open up and listen and feel the awareness that shines through you and the love that's shining through you, you see, it's been here all along. And so this joy of being is the kind of culmination. Um, but it's not like you start with one and then you do, and then you go to the end as a, you've got to perfect one. It's a holistic kind of thing. Wherever you enter into that intention for greater well-being, you are supporting all the others. So <clears throat> I think I'll... I'll stop here just so that there's some uh, a chance for uh, some discussion and uh, let you read the book if you want to find out more or take the course. So I'll just open it up here. Yeah. I have a comment. Um, several of us that are here in what, 2006 um, met together. I live in rural Minnesota, uh-huh. and um, so having some things online and then we would come together once a month and, and talk about, well, so how's it going for you and what, what happened? Uh, uh, I found it really transformative and I didn't do, honestly, a lot of the reading, but I was able to, you know, kind of get a lot out of it, so I'm really happy to have the book. Oh, great. I'm happy you're here. Yeah. I knew she was coming. No, no. <laughs> and you can pay you later. I'll, I'll pay you later on. <laughs> No, that's that's the thing. It's it's the secret ingredient is just deciding. Okay, I'm going to do this. And when you do it with others, it's very powerful. I, I encourage people to have a partner or a buddy or groups. There's lots of groups that that form and support each other, and that connection is just very potent. So great. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it can have cyberspace buddies. Yeah, there's ways to hook up with... There's a whole forum to connect with, with other people. There's no future then for country music and the blues. Oh, on the contrary. Okay, so I'm glad you brought that up. Because actually, besides being based in, in Buddhist uh, philosophy... Uh, there's a lot of supportive practices that I found particularly helpful to uh, awaken joy and well-being. And singing is a big one. Uh, I encourage people, there's no failing, there's no pressure, you can't do this wrong, no guilt if you don't do other things, but if you really want to go for it, sing every day. Or sing as much as as you can. Even the blues. If you're feeling really lousy, sing the blues. That's why they were created. And as as far as singing, it aligns, it, it, it opens up your, your throat, it aligns you with a vibration, and when you are expressing yourself in that way, or any other way creative, creatively, if singing isn't your thing, dancing, writing, um, drawing, letting life move through you is incredibly powerful. It gets you out of your head. So, sing.
And we also, along with that other supportive practices, get being in your body. You know, I, I was I was so happy to take uh, Mark's Qigong class this morning. Uh, it's good, you know, and it's good to just move your body so you get out of your head, or having a gratitude practice, or keeping a, a little gratitude uh, or a little journal. Uh, lots of different things that you can support yourself. Finding a nourishment list. What really brings you well-being and happiness? And how often are you nourishing yourself? Because if you're not, you're coming from a place of depletion. And so you want to nourish yourself, as, as uh, Shanti Deva says, uh, it, it, it lifts you uh, above the poverty into the wealth of giving to life when your heart is open when you realize how precious this life is, when you realize, oh, there's awareness that is awakening in me. You don't want to come from a place of poverty. You want to come from a nourishment where you can give to life. And where you have more energy to look for the good. Like Mark was saying in his, in his lovely introduction, really a key principle is looking for the good. And if you look for it, not only within you, but all around you, not only will you feel good, but you'll have a, you'll actually affect your environment. Just a little, little uh, thing that I share most every retreat. If you're feeling, say somebody is comes into a room, and you sense they're they're seeing all your foibles and flaws. How do you feel? Flawed, don't you? <laughs> Exposed, little, whatever. Feels lousy. Somebody else can come into a room. They might know every flaw or know all your your weaknesses, but you know that they're seeing how beautiful you are. And that, that's what they're, they're looking at. How do you feel? Beautiful. Or as sometimes it said, beautiful. <laughs> so we are very much affected by what others look for in us. If you keep on looking for the good, you have a better chance of drawing it out of them. Now you can't do it with everybody, but you keep on looking for it, and it wants to come out. So. You um, you'll find that that's a that's really a cornerstone of the practice. So um, over, I have a very positive reaction towards life. I had some friends who over the years I've become kind of disconnected from because um, either become curmudgeons or else there's negative baggage there, and I have a, a way to connect that with them because it, it doesn't resonate with how I function. And so, and I haven't read your book or attended any of your online courses, <coughs> but I kind of feel bad that somehow those were people I was close to with 30, 40 years ago. Now, I can't get close to them. And there's other people, so it isn't like, yeah. oh my God, there's a big boy. Yeah. Still, they're there, they're people, and yet, they're either curmudgeons or they're negative and they have yeah. this baggage. Like, so how do you deal with that? I mean, other than just happy talk, which doesn't work. <laughs> no. Uh, and, but you still want, you still value the relationships and want to stay with them. Well, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about it. Yeah, if you're a positive person, yeah. you'd rather associate with other positive people. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like human nature. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a really important question, especially if, if there are people in your life who are important to you, who you love. They just don't see what they're creating in their, in their minds. And the, the Buddha said very clearly, encouraged to develop all the factors of enlightenment. The one common link is to avoid the company of those 
who don't value those factors and to be in the company of the wise because we are susceptible to our environment. So for the most part, it makes sense to choose carefully what your environments are. That doesn't mean you cut them off, but you want to take them in small doses. And, and if they're not ready to see things your way, but you're not getting, you're not growing or feeling good about yourself or being around them, then you want to be really wise around how much you can, uh, you can be there. And don't expect to change people. Unless they want to change, it's unlikely they will. But if you keep on looking for the good in them when you're with them, and um, allowing for wellness to come out, you're not going to be convincing them, oh yes, isn't life wonderful? Give that one up. And, but you can just give them love. That's, you know, that's the best thing you can do. And you're, you know, hang out with people that you really value. But anyone can change. Here's one, one more you just reminded me. You know the positive psychology movement, which has been radical in, uh, in, in seeing not just pathology, but seeing the good. This was the start of the positive psychology movement. This guy, Martin Seligman, who um, wrote a book, Authentic Happiness. And he was the, fa- the father of the positive psychology movement. The moment took place in my garden while I was weeding with my five-year-old daughter, Nikki. I have to confess that even though I write books about children, I'm not at all that good with them. I'm goal-oriented and time-urgent, and when I'm weeding in the garden, I'm actually trying to get the weeding done. Nikki, Nikki, however, was throwing weeds into the air, singing and dancing around. I yelled at her. She walked away, came back, and said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. (laughs) Yes, Nikki, I said. Daddy, do you remember before my fifth birthday, from the time I was three to the time I was five, I was a whiner. I whined every day. When I turned five, I decided not to whine anymore. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. And if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. This was for me an epiphany, nothing less. Nikki hit the nail right on the head. I was a grouch. I had spent 50 years mostly enduring wet weather in my soul and the last 10 being a nimbus cloud in a household full of sunshine. Any good fortune I had was probably not due to my grumpiness, but in spite of it. In that moment, I resolved to change. That was the start of the positive psychology movement. So, not to give up on them, but just not to be, uh, to be butting your head against the wall and thinking, oh, they should be different than the way they are. Just keep loving them when you're around them. That's a good practice for you. so much I am a generous person. The, the words of the, in the discourse say, I am generous, or I am being generous now. Actually, it says, I am generous. But the idea that I get is, I am being generous now. Notice how it feels when generosity moves through you. Not to identify and say, I am such a generous person, but just that generosity moves through me. And to stay tuned when you have those spontaneous impulses when there's a random act of kindness coming through you so that you more and more incline towards that way not defining yourself because then you set yourself up when you're not being so generous or you're being a grump or whatever and say oh I blew it we have all of it inside of us but to just focus more and more and see how good that feels that wholesome state maybe pack one more yeah. Well, I've often wondered um, if, or, or why, in a way, there's you know so many teachings of the Buddha that are so balanced of seeing, you know, like two sides, and um, so why does four noble truths 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.